Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mea Culpa podcast. As the Ukraine war turns from the early days of optimism for the forces of democracy into the reality of a horror-filled street fight for the future of the Ukrainian people, we are witnessing the true cost of war. The sound of sporadic gun battles echo across the Ukrainian capital, Kiev. Russian invasion forces are closing in on the city. The president, Volodymyr Zelensky, made a bleak but defiant video address. Good evening, everyone. Our troops are here. Our citizens are here. All of us are here, protecting the independence of our country. And it will continue to be this way. Glory to our defenders. Glory to Ukraine. Glory to heroes. In places like Maripol, Russian forces have pushed into the city center by targeting civilian centers and stymieing supply lines, denying desperately needed humanitarian aid and causing suffering on a mass scale. In this footage from Sunday, you can hear the sound of the bombing as these terrified civilians seek shelter. Pictures of whole city blocks leveled by Russian artillery and air power directly next to mass graves have become the norm. And now moving on to a quick breaking news update before we take this with our expert reports now suggesting that 67 civilians have been killed by Russian occupiers and have been buried in a mass grave on the territory of a church in Bukha city in the Kiev region. Some victims have not even been identified. Accurate news from the front has been hard to come by as Russian forces are now targeting foreign journalists in an attempt to black out coverage and hide their atrocities. The deaths of at least three journalists in the past few days in Ukraine highlight the dangers that journalists face doing their jobs in a conflict zone. The Committee to Protect Journalists says nine journalists and media workers have been killed so far this year, including a Ukrainian camera operator killed when Russia struck a TV tower. That figure does not include the two deaths confirmed by Fox. Thankfully, reporters from the Associated Press have bravely made their way into the city and bring us harrowing reports showcasing the fearsome Russian war machine at its cruelest, as well as the continued resolve of the Ukrainian people. The bodies of the children all lie here, dumped into this narrow trench hastily dug into the frozen earth of Maripol to the constant drumbeat of shelling. There's 18-month-old Kirill, whose shrapnel wound to the head proved too much for his little toddler body. There's 16-year-old Aliyah whose legs were blown up in an explosion during a soccer game at a school field. There's the girl no older than six who wore the pajamas with cartoon unicorns among the first of Maripol's children to die from a Russian shell. They are stacked together with dozens of others in this mass grave on the outskirts of the city. A man covered in a bright blue tarp weighed down by stones at the crumbling curb. A woman wrapped in a red and gold bedsheet, her legs neatly bound at the ankles with a scrap of white fabric. Workers toss the bodies in as fast as they can because the less time they spend in the open, the better their own chances of survival. The mayor there says the bombings just simply never stop. We just saw some of that video. I mean, massive craters in the city center. You can only imagine the devastation actually on the ground there right now. The deputy mayor there also saying it almost feels like a medieval siege right now. Russian troops trying to encircle the city, cut off civilians that are still living inside. And Kira, what's also terrifying for all those people is just like they can't escape, they also cannot get supplies in. It's been almost two weeks of them being completely cut off. You know, there's reports from the ICRC saying there are hundreds of thousands of people still living inside that city right now. There's no drinking water. There's barely any food left. Many are out completely. There's also no, no heating. It is freezing cold. Sub-zero temps here in Kira. So the ICRC said this is a humanitarian crisis. It's only getting more dire because you can only survive in these conditions for so long. Each airstrike and shell that relentlessly pounds Maripol about one minute at times, drives home the curse of a geography that has put the city squarely in the path of Russia's domination of Ukraine. 
this southern seaport of 430,000 has become a symbol of Russian President Vladimir Putin's drive to crush democratic Ukraine, but also of a fierce resistance on the ground. I mean, you mentioned the Ukrainian people. Are you surprised at the, at the kind of stiff resistance they're putting up? Well, I knew that they were going to resist, but I am awed, <laughs> just awed and, um, and amazed um, by how, you know, everybody, no matter how old or how young, is resisting. Uh, the, the, the tenacity, uh, the strength is really inspiring. In the nearly three weeks since Russia's war began, two Associated Press journalists have been the only international media present in Maripol, chronicling its fall into chaos and despair. Electricity, says the AP, almost gone. Water sparse, low temperatures in the teens, so they melt the snow to drink. The city is now encircled by Russian soldiers who are slowly squeezing the life out of it, one blast at a time. Several appeals for humanitarian corridors to evacuate civilians went unheeded until Ukrainian officials said Wednesday that about 30,000 people had fled in convoys of cars. Furniture scraps burned to keep warm. Local officials count 2,500 dead before the strike on the theater today. No communications, roads are mined and blocked. Hundreds of thousands of people trapped, writes the Associated Press. Freezing, starving as the bombs fall all around them. Hell on earth. Airstrikes and shells have hit the maternity hospital, the fire department, homes, a church, a field outside a school. For the estimated hundreds of thousands who remain, there is quite simply nowhere to go. Ukrainian officials say Russian forces bombed a theater used as a shelter in Mariupol and took over another hospital, locking in hundreds of civilians, doctors and patients as human shields. The surrounding roads are mined and the port blocked. Food is running out, and the Russians have stopped humanitarian attempts to bring it in. Some parents have even left their newborns at the hospital, perhaps hoping to give them a chance at life in one place with decent electricity and water. People burn scraps of furniture and makeshift grills to warm their hands in the freezing cold and to cook what little food that there still is. The grills themselves are built with one thing that is plentiful bricks and shards of metal scattered in the streets from destroyed buildings. Look folks, death is everywhere. Local officials have tallied more than 2,500 deaths in the siege, but many bodies can't be counted because of the endless shelling. They have told families to leave their dead outside in the streets because it's too dangerous to hold funerals. Uh, for what us, one of the most concerning things is that um, we've been completely cut off from being able to access Mariupol. So uh, we also lost communications with the hospitals there who we had been in contact with, who we had been donating supplies to. The last communication we had was that uh, they were receiving uh, an increased amount of wounded and they were worried about running out of supplies because the supply, the medical supply chain in the entire country has been disrupted due to this war. The European continent has not seen fighting on this scale since World War II. Elsewhere in the country, Ukrainian forces are keeping the Russian army at bay. But it seems it's only a matter of time before what's happening in Maripol happens elsewhere, like in Kiev, in Odessa, and across the nation, as Putin unleashes the full power of his artillery and airstrikes. The international community has seen this before. Atrocities in Chechnya and Syria were rife. Unfortunately, this is how Russia wages war. The ineptitude and poor logistics of its army are matched by poor morale. This will only cause Putin to lash out with his fearsome arsenal. How this will manifest in the coming days and weeks is quite obvious. Thousands more will die. Hundreds of thousands will be maimed and wounded. The suffering will continue. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa joins us from the front lines of Ukraine. Yeah, the front lines of Ukraine, having recently arrived with his group, Sons of Liberty International, to train the growing legion of volunteer fighters who make up Ukraine's territorial defense forces. 
His all-volunteer group exists to support the global fight for freedom and democracy by providing training and support for freedom fighters around the world. In 2011, after graduating from Georgetown University, Van Dyke traveled to Libya during the uprisings that followed the Arab Spring to fight against the regime of Muammar Gaddafi in the Libyan Revolution as an American freedom fighter and soldier in the National Liberation Army. He was wounded and captured by Gaddafi's forces and spent nearly six months as a prisoner of war where he was routinely tortured in two of Libya's most notorious prisons before ultimately escaping. He had the choice to return to his Maryland home, but instead chose to stay and fight, returning to the front and active combat until the revolution was over. His experiences are the subject of the documentary film, Point and Shoot, which won the 2014 Tribeca Film Festival Best Documentary Award. Van Dyke founded the security firm Sons of Liberty International, also known as Soli, in 2014, after two of his friends, journalists James Foley and Stephen Sotloff, were beheaded by ISIS. The group, which operates as a non-profit and has no connection to the U.S. military, began as a way to help Iraqi Christians fight ISIS, but it grew into a formidable organization that fights against tyranny and authoritarian regimes worldwide. He joins me today on Mea Culpa from an undisclosed location, hoping to use the opportunity to give an unvarnished assessment of what's really happening to date in this terrible war. Just a warning to my listeners that this interview is coming to you live from an active war zone, so reception may be spotty at times. And let's go now to that conversation. All right, Matthew, let's start with where you are right now and what you're doing. From what I understand, you recently arrived in Ukraine to help train the growing volunteer, and I think they call themselves, it's the Territorial Defense Force that has mobilized since the Russian invasion. If you would do me the favor and the honor, please explain to my listeners how your group, Sons of Liberty, enlisted and what your role will be in Ukraine. That's correct. Uh, a couple of days ago, Sons of Liberty International and I, uh, entered Ukraine on a mission to train the Territorial Defense Forces. Uh, this is a group of civilians that have enlisted to defend their country. So we're going to be providing military training to them to take them from no military experience to uh, as much competency as possible to fight the Russians should they enter this area. Um, and we'll be doing this in, in various parts of the country until Ukraine drives Russia from its borders. You know, from what I understand, and let's talk about Sons of Liberty, because that's an organization that you founded. Um, it's a loosely organized, clandestine, right, political organization. How many people, you know, were you contemplating on bringing over there? Tell me how you're training them. If you would explain to my listeners who you are and specifically how you're going to train them. I don't want to know anything that could potentially put you or anyone in jeopardy at all. I'm not going to ask you what location that you're at, though knowing you from the way that I do, you're knee-deep into, into you know this war because that's who you are. That's who Sons of Liberty is. But if you could tell us a little bit more about this organization that you started and the people that you brought with you. Well, we're a 501c3 nonprofit organization, um, non-religious, non-partisan. Uh, we believe in freedom and people determining their own futures and their own destinies. Uh, we've been in existence since 2014 when our first mission was in Iraq, uh, training forces to fight against ISIS. We've also done work in the Philippines as well and elsewhere. Um, you know, in this case, we're training Ukrainians to defend their democratic country against the invasion by Russia. And I recruit mostly American military veterans, but also occasionally military veterans from other countries to volunteer to come over and provide training uh, and advising. And we occasionally provide supplies as well to forces that are fighting against authoritarian regimes or terrorist groups or whoever is oppressing them. In this case, in Ukraine, they're fighting both 
a foreign invading power, an authoritarian government and terrorists, all of which would adequately describe Putin and his regime. So being that you're there for just a short period so far, and I suspect that you're going to stay there for a Mm -hmm. while, um, what are you seeing there on the ground? What are you what's the morale uh, by the you, you know, by Ukrainian citizens, um, male and female? Look, I only see what I see on television, just like, you know, most of the world. And, you know, when I saw Ukrainian women sit there and they were uh, being interviewed, I think it was on CNN. And the woman said, we're tougher than the men, right? It's why Earth is Mother Earth. We're fighting as mothers for our land, for our territory, for our, for our husbands. We're fighting for our children, for our democracy. I mean, it was so touching to me. So I fully understand. And when I tell you I appreciate what you and the other members of Sons of Liberty are doing, you have no idea. My wife is actually from uh, southwest of the Ukraine, an area that the, the press calls it Chernovitz, but it's really, I, I've always heard it referred to as Chernovtsi. So rest assured, and I know a lot of people that are in um, the Kiev area. I've been to Kiev. Kiev is a beautiful, beautiful city. And seeing what's going on there, this indiscriminate bombing. Tell me about some of the buildings that you saw there. Uh, you know, I understand that they just knocked out a media tower somewhere completely out of the area where things were being shelled. Tell me what you're seeing. Well, the Russian military is just trying to make life hard for Ukrainians now in hopes that the Ukrainian government will capitulate and give in to Russian demands uh, just by waging death and destruction on the country. It's really gone from a military versus military conflict to Russia really targeting civilians in the hope that they'll just break the will of the Ukrainian people. And this will be a failed strategy because the will of people here and the popular mobilization that I'm seeing is absolutely extraordinary. Uh, I, I haven't really seen anything like it. The closest is when I was in Libya uh, fighting that revolution in 2011, seeing uh, civilians who would come to the front line, bringing us cold drinks and snacks under gunfire to fighters on the front line. I fully expect that I'll see that in this conflict as well. Uh, just the other day, when we were at a, a pizza place and we went and put money in the tip jar and uh, we asked, you know, does the tip go to just the girl at the counter or to everybody? And she said it goes to none of us. Uh, ever since the war broke out, we send all the tip money to the front line. So this is the kind of spirit of, of everywhere you go in this city. There's people volunteering to fight. There's people volunteering um, to, to do humanitarian work, the, the organization that they have set up um, all, all over the area for humanitarian supplies coming in, the, the level of, of um, the organization, the management, everything is, is something I haven't seen in other conflict zones. These people are extremely serious. The, the way that they're doing things is they're doing everything right and they're doing everything with a spirit that is just inspiring to see. Um, there is no way that Russia could ever subdue this population. It, it was complete folly that, that Putin ever thought that he could break the will of these people. So many people have signed up for territorial defense forces. Um, you know, I've, I, tens of thousands easily will be fighting. Hundreds of thousands have signed up. There's really no limit to the manpower and woman power that that Ukraine can muster in this fight. And, and you talk about the women, uh, a, a significant percentage of the military, I think maybe one fifth at least is female in Ukraine. We've seen plenty of women fighters, plenty of women security. Um, and they're, they're, from what I've heard, uh, as good or better than the men at fighting. Uh, yeah, it's really the entire society stepping up in a way that, that would inspire anybody around the world. Look, rest assured, I yeah, rest assured, I know how strong and tough Ukrainian women are. I've married for 27 years, you know, to one. So, yeah, I truly know. But I wanted to ask you this, Matt. Do you think that all of this incredible nationalism and the love for country by Ukrainians, men and women, is really a direct result of the president 
actions, and I'm not talking about the U.S. Of course, I'm talking about, you know, the Ukrainian president, uh, Volodymyr um, Zelensky, you know, because, you know, he was a former comedian. And the other day he came out and he started with what um, CNN called a very dark joke about the work week. And he stated, you know, we used to say Monday is a hard day, right? Um, There's a war in the country. So every day is Monday. And now we're used to the fact that every day and every night are like that. There's some interesting thoughts that come to mind when I heard that. And then again, when I read it, it's actually brilliant. It's very um, Winston Churchill, if you think about it. And I don't know whether or not he thought about this when he made this statement, whether he tried to make it Churchillian, right? Uh, Because many people have compared Zelensky to Winston Churchill. Tell me, tell me your thoughts on this. I mean, I'm so intrigued, the fact that here I am, safe in New York, and there you are in Ukraine, right there on the front line. Zelensky's leadership has really been pivotal to, to the way that this conflict has gone. I mean, all, all the spirit of Ukrainians was there, but if they had seen their president run... Um, if he had taken the, the parachute offered to him to evacuate from Ukraine instead of saying, I don't need a ride, I need ammunition. Uh, that is really what's what cemented Ukrainians' feet to the ground and turned them towards Russia instead of the other way. Uh, Ukraine's been blessed with the kind of leadership that's rarely seen in these conflicts. I mean, truly, you know, the American Revolution, we were blessed with with leaders that we're good for that time, and we had a lot of them to lead that revolution. But in this case, Zelensky is of that caliber, of the founding fathers of the United States. And, you know, it's actually good that he was in the entertainment industry because he knows how to talk to people. He knows how to use phrasing. He knows how to inspire. He's actually the right man for the time uh, in this conflict, that they're truly blessed to have him. And every time that the Ukrainian sees him, every time I see him on TV— uh, it's inspirational. And really, if there's one person in the world that I could meet, any celebrity, it would honestly be him at this point. And, and mostly to thank him. Because the fight that Ukraine is taking on here is not just for their country, and they know it's not just for their country. It's the defense of democracy uh, as a form of government, trying to preserve the international system and international norms that have been in existence since the end of World War II, things that the greatest generation of our country fought to establish uh, by winning World War II in the post-war years. They're fighting to preserve that. They're fighting to preserve democracy. They're fighting against a regime that props up and supports and arms authoritarian regimes around the world. When Sons of Liberty International does missions overseas, and every place we go, it's Russian weapons being used to oppress and kill people. And of the regimes that have supported uh, Russia in this. They're familiar names of places that Soli has done or will soon be doing missions in the coming years and coming months in some cases. Um, so, you know, this is this is really taking on the force that has been behind keeping millions of people, hundreds of millions of people around the world in the Stone Age in their form of government and has the potential to not only liberate Ukraine, but uh, change the international system and put an end to authoritarianism far beyond Russia and Ukraine's borders. Well, it, I mean, it's really amazing in the comparison to Churchill. You know, reminds me of when I was incarcerated, one of the books that, I mean, I read like 97 books in a year. I actually, as a kid, I loved to read, not school books. I loved to read whatever I wanted to read. But Winston Churchill was always someone who fascinated me, especially coming uh, from a family where my father is a Holocaust survivor. And I, I mean, I'm so impressed with the fact that it reminds me a little bit of 9-11 when the left, the right, the center, and the media are all praising Zelensky, you know, for his actions. And especially um, giving him the props that he deserves, especially when you compare him to a figure like Winston Churchill. Just as Churchill said, we'll fight them on the hills, we'll fight them on the beaches, we'll fight them wherever they go. It's, it's, it is very much how Zelensky speaks, that this is a fight that, that will never end, 
that everybody will fight until victory. And, you know, it's it's taking a stand and it's doing it in a way that inspires people in a way that very few leaders around the world and in history have been able to do. Zelensky is the type of figure that that uh, like Churchill or like Roosevelt or, or like other historical figures that we rarely see in modern times, um, in people that you really only read about in books and Zelensky's exploits and and courage and what he's done for Ukraine here will be will be the stuff of history books, not just in Ukraine, but but worldwide for just as Churchill is. It's funny that you say that because there's a quote that it reminded me so much of the book I was referring to, which is called The Splendid and the Vile by Eric Larson. And Zelensky made a statement, and I'm certain that he did it in the genre of Winston Churchill when he said, we will not give up and we will not lose. We will fight until the end at sea, in the air. We will continue fighting for our land, whatever the cost. And it's really amazing considering Ukraine compared to Russia is so small. And Ukraine has been militarily weakened over the years. And a lot of it has to do, of course, with their economy. But where he's really taking Putin apart is in the media with his presence, with his incredible usage and command of the language, both um, Russian uh, Ukrainian and English, um, and he's beating Putin at the media game all while wearing a green T-shirt. It really is truly, I mean, I'm inspired by him, as I suspect you are, which is why you're there. Right. It's, um, it would not be the same conflict without, without Zelensky. And really, the morale component is why Ukraine will win this battle and, and why they have been really... I mean, that I would say they actually are winning. If you look at, at losses sustained by each side, if you look at how Russia's been bogged down and how they're not really making very much progress at all, um, you know, that is a matter of will and courage and determination. The Russian soldiers don't want to be there. They don't understand why they're there. Uh, some are surrendering. Some are routing. And and this is what with Sons of Liberty International, we go to train groups we look for people like Ukrainians who really want it, who are going to work hard, who will do anything to succeed um, and will put put in the time and never give up. And that's exactly who Ukrainians are. And that's exactly who the Russian army is. And that is what will determine, even though the size of the two countries is different and the populations are different, you know, any Ukrainian fighter at this point is equal to five or ten of, of Russia's. And despite any any disparity in technology or experience, Really, they have much more heart, and uh, in our in our experience as an organization, and really the experience of history, that's really what wins wars: is who keeps moving forward, who keeps who keeps looking forward, and who keeps the fight up even when it gets difficult. And that is Ukraine, and that is not Russia. Yeah, I agree with you. But Matthew, we spoke earlier about the popular mobilization of the entire Ukrainian society. Now, something that you just said is. You haven't seen such, you haven't seen anything like this on such a scale since you were in Libya. Do you think that's what ultimately has stymied the Russian forces? The fact that they weren't expecting this mass revolt from uh, Ukrainian people? Yes, it, this will go down in history as one of the greatest intelligence failures of all time that, that Putin ever believed that Ukrainians would just roll over um, his invading force. I mean, not only have they not rolled over, but um, people have stayed. I mean, there's been a, a good amount of refugees, a few million, but compared to the size of the country, uh, even the refugee flow isn't as much as it might have been in, in some other places. And the men stay. I mean, men 18 to 60 are supposed to stay and fight, and they are. Um, you know, we've, we've seen even communities that don't have organized checkpoints organized on their own and taking the initiative to, to do whatever they can for the war effort. And they're all willing to do it. These are the most patriotic people who, again, realize, though, that they're not just fighting for Ukraine. They're fighting for all of us. And and it's true when they say, like, this is the first battle against NATO in the Western world, even though they're not part of NATO. They are the front line right in front of NATO. And if they fail. Putin's ambitions will not stop it at Ukraine, whether it's NATO or Moldova or wherever. 
they're really fighting a fight for a lot of people and, and for the international system as a whole. But the popular mobilization, yes, I've not seen anything like this since Libya. Uh, in Libya, people, civilians preparing food, driving it up to the front line under a hail of bullets just to make sure that we were, we were fed on the front line. Um, they would send food up with little notes of encouragement tucked inside the food, these sorts of things that, that when you're on the front line and you know that everybody's supporting you behind you and you know the civilians are supporting you and you know that you're really not up there alone because you have the spirit of, of all the people that, that are behind you, uh, it makes an incredible difference on the battlefield. And that is what's happening in Ukraine. Um, they know that, that even whether it's a pizza shop sending their small amount of tips uh, multiplied by thousands, or the international community supporting them with, with weapons and ammunition and other support, um, or Ukrainians dropping their normal jobs and, and pursuit of their living and everything to, to organize humanitarian aid coming in to deliver it. Um, you know, on the way in, we, we had to take an 11 hour bus just to get from Warsaw into Ukraine. Uh, that was stopped at a depot, and all the men, which really was was us and maybe two other guys uh, got out and loaded humanitarian supplies on the bus to bring across the country. Like everything that before would have just been a bus ride even is a, is a call to stop and load up to carry humanitarian aid in. So really everybody here is doing their part. And really uh, even, even people that are keeping going to keep things running are, are not doing so uh, with the mindset that they had before, they're doing so to keep the economy going, to keep their country going, to to keep things from falling apart. And it's really uh, can bring a tear to your eye to see that, um, to see in a world where normally people are so cynical or people you think they only care about um, pursuit of wealth or or petty things like what what what's on TV, some some particular show or something that they follow or sports team, when really uh, it's, it's inspiring to see that people actually do care about each other and their neighborhood and their country and that they will stand together when when the time comes that they have to and really work together to to achieve something extraordinary against, you know, and a, a world power with nuclear weapons that wipe them out. And that is not going to stop them from standing up for themselves and for all of us. Then let's look at the contrast to the Ukrainian people. How bad then is the moral amongst the Russian fighters? Because I read in a recent article that showed a whole slew of captured Russian fighters in tears who claimed that they were threatened with execution if they didn't fight and if they refused to be sent to the front line. Describe for me what you, what you see there, if anything at all. I haven't seen Russian fighters, but I've certainly heard those accounts, and so have Ukrainians, and there's no reason to not believe them. There's been uh, Russian prisoners put on television who appear to have been treated well and say they were treated well, who obviously regret, not because they were captured, but regret that they were ever sent in, who don't understand why they were sent in. Um, it appears that a lot of them were tricked and told that they were just on a training mission and then sent to war. Uh, this is not a way that you win a war. You win a war on morale and you win a war on experience. And yes, the weapons help. But at the end of the day, the boots on the ground have to march forward and they have to not run and they have to believe in what they're doing. And, you know, Putin had a chance maybe if Ukraine did roll over somehow. But now that he's in a real war, it is not a way that he can win. And he is not going to win this conflict. Um, my only hope is that is that. Ukraine doesn't negotiate away too much of its territory or any of its territory, really. I mean, my personal opinion, it, which doesn't really matter, but I think they should press the issue and try to get back what Russia took in 2014. So 40 miles is a it's a long it's a long convoy. What I didn't understand, because I am aware that they have drones. And the drones, as you know, have missiles attached to it. I think it's either four, potentially six missiles uh, on the size of the drones. Send 10 drones. Nail the back, nail the front, do them in opposite directions. 
right? And you're doing it from a distance. Take out the 40 miles. And you know, once you nail some of them, the heat causes the other ones to explode and so on. Because now some of the some of those vehicles and some of the armaments that are part of that convoy are either in hiding or they're retreating, trying to fix them or trying to fuel them up or so on. It would have been great, you know, to have taken out. Could you imagine the big emotional boost that it would have given Ukrainian fighters had they knocked out 40 miles worth of Russian, you know, um, vehicles and so on? Why didn't they do it? I mean, they they have used drones. They actually have their own a drone that they also developed themselves since 2015 in country that also has offensive capability. You know, I, I I'm not sure why they haven't. I would imagine that that there's concerns about uh, Russian countermeasures, whether they're electronic or jamming um, or anti-aircraft. It could be that they're actually also saving those assets, but they've done a pretty good job with the javelins uh, taking out the targets from the ground. But yes, I mean, it would, it's a good question. It's a very good question. There's a lot of things in this war that aren't quite adding up um, that hopefully we'll learn the reasons for it, um, especially on the Russian side. Uh, You know, the, the 40 mile convoy due to logistics problems. Yes. But why has Russia also not used its air force as much as it, as it could Um, again, probably because of anti-aircraft missiles, probably because if a Russian jet is shot down, it's more of a blow of morale to his own men than it would be of benefit of whatever that Russian uh, uh, jet could actually accomplish in the air. But, you know, there's there's assets not being used to their full effectiveness on both sides. And I would think perhaps they're being held in reserve. But it, it is a very good question. Yes, if they did hit the convoy, especially at the front and back in certain areas and trap the vehicles in, especially when they're all a lot of them are lined up on one road. And now it's starting to turn spring and fall and, and the, the uh, frozen ground starting to turn muddy, um, which can also bog down the vehicles, especially the ones that are not tracked. Uh, there are there are some mysteries in this conflict. Um, you know, perhaps one day we'll have answers. To them. Well, that would be great. But, you know, Matt, because you're there in Ukraine, one of the misnomers of this conflict is that foreign volunteers like yourself can just show up and be handed a gun and allowed to fight in a so-called international legion. Now, I'm curious, how does it really work for people who do have experience and want to join the fight, or people who have no experience but still nevertheless want to join the fight? How does it work? Well, there's there's two types of, of, uh, well, I guess three if you include us and other organizations that are coming in. There's the um, random individual that comes in and wants to join the International Legion and go to the front line and fight. There's random individuals who come who want to train Ukrainians and help in, in those sorts of ways. And then there's a few organizations that come in like us um, that are providing medical and other training. We're the only one that really provides combat training. Um, but the ones that the, the issue is that the Ukrainian government, in a rather unusual move, put out a call for foreigners to come, sort of a um, like what jihadists do, but jihadists for liberty, which is, is a way that perhaps I could be described from time to time. <laughs> people that are, are, are very uh, vehemently committed to the cause and are willing to travel and give their lives for it, which is a good, a, a, a noble desire. But there are a lot showing up who have no experience, who may have some issues and so on, who think that they get off the plane and they're handed a weapon and sent to the front. It does not work like that at all. Um, You're required to sign a contract. From what I understand, the contract can vary between a three-year commitment to the Ukrainian military all the way up to you have to stay until the war is won. And what you end up signing apparently depends on how good your negotiating skills might be. Um, is what is what I've learned. Um, getting a weapon is difficult. Um, even trying to purchase a weapon now, you require a permit. It's actually way more structured than any other conflict we've been in. Um, usually for our organization, we will go in for the security of our own men. We'll either be loaned weapons by the force we're working with or we'll buy them. Uh, and in either case here, it's it's quite difficult. Um, you have to wait to 
to be issued weapons because there's not really weapons for sale around here. And even if there are, there's a legal process. It's a very um, bureaucratic, surprisingly bureaucratic still for war. So anybody who thinks that they're going to uh, get off the plane, be handed handed a weapon and, uh, and a bunch of ammunition and and go uh, recreate the Spanish Civil War in the Lincoln Brigades. Uh, it is it is not that. And I would caution people who who believe that it is that. And they've actually been requested to apply to the Ukrainian embassy. It involves um, submitting documents and an interview process uh, and so on. Um, if they apply to us to, to do training, we have a very stringent process as well. Um, you know, we have over a thousand applicants over the years. We take less than 1%. Um, you know, I, I am glad people want to come over, but it is not what the press has really made it out to be as some sort of free-for-all. It is, they are structured. Ukrainians are not playing any games here. Um, this is serious for everybody. And and really, it, there's ways to do things the right way, and people need to do that when they come over. To I mean, it makes perfect sense because, as I was going to ask you in my next question, I mean, how do you avoid inadvertently arming the wrong people, right, and creating the kind of blowback situation that we saw in Afghanistan, where by arming the Mujahideen, right, we sowed the seeds for the future Taliban takeover of the country. Now. I'm speaking mainly of extreme far-right groups affiliated with the um, territorial defense forces like the wildly feared Azov Regiment, you know, who harbor neo-Nazi ideologies and have since, um, you know, started the invasion, you know, which is formed into its own political party. What do you do in order to prevent something like this from happening? Well, from everything we've experienced so far, the territorial defense forces are very well structured and very bureaucratic and do quite a good job of vetting uh, who they're working with. They ha have won the praise and, and adoration and support of the international community. And then, you know, as we've noted, Zelensky is very media savvy. So they're, they're certainly taking precautions not to not to do anything that could blow back on them now or later. Um, you know, that said, when you're in a war, there are people that show up next to you on the front line. My personal view is, um, I mean, what are you going to do in the heat of the battle except hope that they shoot in the right direction and then deal with them later uh, to, to clean up the mess with, with their presence afterwards? But, you know, in any, I don't, Ukrainians shouldn't be faulted for whatever elements show up. If we had a war in America, we'd have the exact same problem and probably 10 times worse of groups that, you know, unsavory groups and individuals who who are also shooting at Russians. Um, you know, the Russian media will take any opportunity to play this up as as making it look like that is who the Ukrainians are. And it's not. I We have not encountered any neo-Nazis, any uh, negative elements. We've only seen great people in this conflict. We haven't seen uh, unsavory elements. We haven't seen people doing things they shouldn't be. We've seen no Nazi symbols. We've seen no uh, anything other than, than Ukrainian flags and Ukrainian symbology and, and pride. And, you know, any any elements that that are far right or, or Nazi are such a minor thing that we haven't even encountered it. And I really doubt we will. Well, let's hope that you don't. You know what? I was curious because Sons of Liberty is a real organization and easily verifiable, both by the Polish government, by the Ukrainian government, uh, and so on. I'm a little bit shocked because, again, of your extensive military experience, your military training, um, the organization itself, that you weren't able to bring some of your own. Now, that's uh, maybe my, you know, I don't know if you did or you didn't, but I would think that you would want to travel. Um, you know, they could easily put it into a, you know, into a, a case and then send it, you know, with you on the flight, you know, put it into storage. I mean, this isn't like you're going with, um, you know, clothes that you're bringing back from France, right? Or shoes. We're talking about going into a war zone as a military assistant, right, to the government. They, I'm shocked that they don't allow you to bring your own gear. Uh, I'm honestly not sure if they would or not. Um, 
you know, this conflict started three weeks ago and it was not uh, on our on our schedule at all for this year. This is uh, something that happened very quickly. Doing something like uh, bringing our own weapons would have been a process that really there wasn't time to even explore. It's really, it's not something that we've had to do though in previous conflicts just because usually weapons are very easily acquirable on the ground. In this case is a little different. Uh, we also like to use the weapons that are local, uh, mostly for ease of, of acquiring ammunition. Um, and also because when we train, we train them on weapons that are the weapons that they're going to use. So Matt, let me just move on for a second here. I've heard that one of the reasons for the Russians' fierce siege of Maripol is based on the fact that the Azov Brigade is operating there and the capture of these fighters would be a massive, massive propaganda victory for the Russians who have based their invasion on the erroneous desire to denazify the country. Can you discuss this with my listeners? It's a theory and it's a possibility. Um, it's probably more likely that it's a strategic city that, that will allow him to unify his forces coming from the south with his forces coming from the east and make his supply lines uh, a, a bit more fluid. So, you know, Matt, something I probably should have asked at the beginning, but I'd like to ask you now, you know, from your time now being there in Ukraine, what's the situation right now with humanitarian aid? Can you walk my listeners through what people actually need there versus what they're receiving? Because we see massive efforts. I mean, I have friends here in the United States. I have friends in Poland and in the UK, and they're all organizing and sending over various different things, literally from diapers to, you know, sneakers to socks. Um, you know, what is it that they actually need versus what they're receiving? Well, I visited a, a massive humanitarian depot um, a couple of days ago, the biggest warehouse I've ever seen in my life. And with discussions with them, uh, they don't need as much clothing. Uh, they've received a, a lot of clothing, and and that that issue is taken care of. What they really need is medical supplies. Uh, they do need some food supplies, but really the medical supplies is what they're really struggling with, both in clinics um, and as well at the front line. I, I was told that the number of personal first aid kits that in, in most militaries every soldier carries a personal IFAC. And it's actually something we're working on. We usually don't, don't delve into medical supplies, but because this is for frontline soldiers, um, it's more related to what we do and we're doing our best on it. But this is really what they need. And, and it's a combination of funding and, and sourcing the stuff that's slowing them down. Um, they've gone to, to places, uh, other countries in Europe, where it's all backordered because of the demand and they just get the supplies yeah. they can't get them here and, and they are trying and we have numerous contacts and each of the contacts is telling us that what they're spending their time on now is trying to get medical supplies uh which are tourniquets uh certain types of tourniquets called a cat seven um hemostatic bandages um combat bandages and chest seals the main components of, of an ifac these things are very hard for them to find some of the things that they've been sent are are not really authentic and and not the best quality. So this is really what they're struggling with. And this is costing people lives on the front line in the cities getting hit by artillery and it's costing soldiers their lives. And and this is really what they need. In addition to a lot of other things, but that is what I'm hearing right now is what they need the most. I've never seen a humanitarian operation as efficient and professional as what I've seen in this country. It blows my mind compared to every other conflict zone I've been in, and there's been many that I've been in. No, no people has organized themselves as well professionally and efficiently as Ukraine. People who give money for humanitarian efforts in Ukraine can have uh, complete confidence that their money, uh, to, you know, as long as they give to a legitimate place, but things that uh, their money, things that they send are being used, are being used the right way. You know, you don't have to worry that you're sending things and they're going to the wrong place because Ukraine, with all these popular mobilization of, of the population, there are plenty of people volunteering. That warehouse is full of volunteers and and professional volunteers. I mean, there's there's doctors and medics who then come and volunteer when they're off work just to sort the medical supplies. I mean, 
when you send things for this conflict, you don't have to worry about theft and corruption. Like that is not that is not what's happening here. This is this is pure and honest and people doing the right thing. And really, because the stakes are so high for them, everything's done as efficiently and professionally and well as possible. It's really impressive. It is impressive. Now, you know, thanks to Trump and his, you know, attacks upon the media and journalists, you know, I know that predictions are basically considered the lowest form of journalism. But I'm hoping based on what you're seeing there on the ground, can you prognosticate the chances for a Ukrainian victory? You know, right now, obviously, Ukraine is fighting off Russia and they're doing a great, great job. But I want to expand that and get your professional opinion as a prognosticator of this war. What are the chances for a Ukrainian victory? If I was to put money on, I'd put money on the Ukrainians now. If you were to look on paper at population size and military size, um, maybe you come to a different conclusion. But if you know the morale of the Russians versus the morale of the Ukrainians, um, if you know the difficulties with logistics that Russia has had, if you know what the sanctions are doing to Russia's economy, uh, the prior status of Russia now, um, you know, there is no real conceivable way that Russia could win this. And they're going to look for an exit strategy. Even taking Kiev, I believe, will be impossible. Um, if a soldier is, is, doesn't want to be there and is afraid all the time, like the Russian military is, with even reports of soldiers puncturing their own fuel tanks as an excuse not to have to move forward, there is no way you're going to get a Russian soldier to go into urban combat in Kyiv, where the defender already has an incredible advantage and is more willing to fight and is fighting on their own on their own streets, on their own turf, um, and, and is determined to win. And you're trying to send in Russian soldiers who don't want to be there, who are terrified, who don't understand why they're there. It is impossible that they ever take Kyiv. But it is possible that they will destroy Kyiv, and if they do, Ukrainians will have to rebuild. But uh, there is no way that Russia can subdue this country. And the only question is, does, does Ukraine push Russia back all the way to the Russian border? Or does it push it back to territories Russia took in 2014? Really, it's how much does Russia lose in this, not does Russia win? Then let me ask you, then let then let me do a follow-up. Let me do a follow-up while I still have you and we're able to have you, uh, you know, uh, with the internet there. Everything that you're saying, I totally agree with. But at what point will the Russians then unleash the full capability of their air power and their artillery and then basically turning the country into rubble, just like they did in Aleppo and Grozny, right? Because they seem to have held back thus far. And we talked about that earlier on, for some reason that they have not sent in, um, you know, air airstrikes and so on. But at a certain point, they have to, because that's who Putin is. They're going to have to start raining hell on the Ukrainian people. Right. And they are in many cities and they, they will do it to Kiev. I mean, a lot of the delay has been not of Putin's choosing. It's been logistic issues, logistics issues uh, primarily. I mean, the convoy is making very slow progress because they can't get food and fuel to, to his soldiers um, and ammunition. It's largely due to the fact that we greatly overestimated the capabilities of the Russian military. Um, and and that, I mean, that's something that needs to be looked at, that, that we ever thought that the Russian military was even a, a second world military. I mean, their playbook has always been just to smash things. But the problem is he really can't back out of this um, because the Russian people will then realize there was all for nothing. And he, used, he did this for his own place in history and to try to rebuild a Russian empire. He has no exit strategy. He'll never have an exit strategy. The best he can do is destroy as much as possible and try to declare that a victory. And sadly, with this propaganda machine, a large number of Russians will believe that even to the end, no matter how many body bags come back to, to Russian mothers without explanation, um, no matter how much their economy suffers, it really, at the end of the day, a lot of Russia, in the Russian history books, this will be what Putin said it was until Putin's gone and, and Russia someday, hopefully, actually is a democracy and the truth can be told to the Russian people. But right now, Ukrainians are working very hard to make sure that the truth and the outcome is a Ukrainian victory. 
Yes, and Zelensky certainly winning that media war. But speaking about media, journalists have been taking a lot of fire in Ukraine. Now, scores have been shot and wounded, and sadly, several in the past days have been killed. Do you think that the Russians are targeting the foreign press basically as a means of closing of the Ukraine and dissuading outside press from covering the conflict, you know, in its entirety? Uh, Russia is believed to be targeting journalists. Um, People on the ground here say that Russia um, has tapped phones, that they track cell phone signals, they track when phones go on and off, they track clusters of phones, they... um, look for patterns of media, and they do know where media are, um, supposedly even ones that use uh, encrypted apps. So the, the the phone is believed to be the way that Russia tracks media. Uh, it's also been told to us that Russia is paying people to be informants. And, uh, you know, today we actually saw a guy discreetly trying to take a photo of us, which we was told, which we were told was likely to happen, that they will very likely pass that along to Russia as here's a group of Americans who are likely uh, ex-military that are here working with Ukrainian military and Russia will send them a hundred bucks. So uh, people are very concerned here about Russia's ability, both electronic surveillance and human intelligence. And the tracking of journalists is certainly happening. And the targeting of journalists is, is very likely what's going on here. Yeah. Well, that's a problem because, um, (laughs) Look, I want to go to something else here. You recently wrote how glad you were that President Biden banned Trump from receiving the regular intelligence briefings that are generally offered to former presidents. Because here's what we know. At best, he would inadvertently leak classified information simply because he's a moron. And at the worst, he would purposefully leak the information because he acts like a Russian asset and he's a traitor. Discuss this with me. What were you talking about? What I meant is what you just said. I mean, this happened during even the Trump administration. There were reports of, of instances where he said things he shouldn't have said. The intelligence community never really trusted him with classified information. There's no way he could have ever uh, gotten a security clearance if he had to become president, and including uh, his circle, Jared Kushner and, and the others. He is a threat to national security. I hate saying it because he's a former president. Um, I hate I I can't believe that I have to actually say that a former president shouldn't get intelligence briefing because he's a threat to national security. But it's true. And and we're you know, people need to take their vote much more seriously next time. You, You know. It is not a stretch to say that pump uh, that that Trump's praise of Putin and changing the Republican Party platform in regards to arming Ukraine and certain news networks going along with Trump's view because they thought that that's what their their viewers wanted to hear, and people in the Republican Party shifting their stance on Russia, signaling to Russia that there was division in America on issues like if Russia invaded Ukraine. And those are one of the things that caused Putin to make this miscalculation that if he invaded Ukraine, the United States would not be able to get to get its shit together in time to oppose him, whether it's through sanctions or supplying weapons to Ukraine. When the GOP takes out of their platform, army Ukraine, that signals to Putin that if he invades Ukraine, there's going to be enough political division in America that's going to be very difficult for the United States to send weapons to Ukraine. So there are things that are direct consequence of people screwing around when they vote voting for a television celebrity, voting because they want to think that Mexico is going to pay for a wall and being fooled by all this stuff. And it's all it's all laughs and giggles and and cheering for Trump like he was their favorite sports team. And then next thing you know, the international system that 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 the greatest generation sacrificed their lives for in World War II to establish an international system where countries do not invade other countries for their territory all gets undone. And yes, there is a direct line between those two things, and people better recognize it because, I mean, there's hardly any consequence worse than this could be, but who knows what will be next? I mean, this could lead to, to China making a move on Taiwan. Listen, this could lead to world, this could lead to world War III. I mean, I mean it's, it's, it's absolutely incredible. It actually could indeed lead to World War III. And 
And and when you elect a president, whether it's grab them by the pussy and all the games and all the nasty things and all the jokes and people think it's funny and people are just entertained by it. And, and next thing you know, Ukraine gets invaded, people are killed, international systems undone, and possibly, yes, World War III. And it's infuriating. And I see people in certain networks still cheerleading for Russia, doing the Kremlin's dirty work, essentially being Russian assets themselves. Um, Ronald Reagan is spinning so much in his grave, it's going to cause an earthquake. So, Matt, look, I know that you've been traveling for many, many hours over the past few days. I know you have a lot going on tomorrow. My brother, I cannot thank you enough from the bottom of my heart for coming to us here on Mea Culpa to give us the insight on what's really going on there on the ground. Obviously, we'll not release any information in terms of where you're at, but knowing you as I do, I'm sure that you're right where you shouldn't be. If I was your mother, uh, I want to wish you nothing but safety, health. You know, um, what you're doing is, there's, there's no words. So on behalf of the whole free world, I want to thank you for you know what you're doing, you and all of your Sons of Liberty group. Um, I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing for saving democracy worldwide. And I wish you nothing but, again, the best. And when you come back to the States, we have to get together. And I want to hear all the stories. And I want to buy you a dinner and a drink because, my brother, you deserve it. Sounds good. Definitely will. Thank you, my brother. And now for today's mea culpa. In speaking with Matthew Van Dyke, I am fucking sickened by how much Trump's cynical and sleazy political games are responsible for the horror being visited upon the Ukrainian people. We have discussed ad nauseum how Trump has spent a lifetime avoiding accountability. We witnessed this throughout his administration and with his first impeachment. But his perfect phone call, along with the shakedown tried by Rudy Colludi Giuliani, will be viewed decades from now with the same dimness that we now hold for the likes of Neville Chamberlain and his appeasement of Adolf Hitler. I will quote Van Dyke now, who is risking his life to repair the damage wrought by Trump and his cronies. The fact of the matter is that their politicizing of Putin and Russia over the past few years created divisions in American politics and society that led Putin to believe that his invasion of Ukraine would be an irreconcilable political issue that would slow or weaken any U.S. government response to an invasion of Ukraine. They politicized a critical national and international security issue like it was another one of their political games and stunts and bear some responsibility for the consequences of that. It's infuriating and has led to the destruction of a country, thousands of deaths and a refugee crisis unseen in generations. Not to mention the unraveling of international norms that have existed for the past 70 plus years. The anger from Van Dyke in his words is palpable, and they have the added benefit of being true. Trump has caused so much unnecessary suffering, both at home and abroad, for no other reason than he is a sick and narcissistic pig who brings out the very worst in everyone he encounters. This is his legacy, folks, a pandemic that has killed millions, an attack on our own capital from marauding idiots, and now this Russian invasion that could potentially become World War III. This is the work of the devil, and he walks among us, and his name is Donald fucking Trump. I am reminded of a quote from Hindu scripture that goes as follows, Now I am become death, destroyer of worlds. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Mea Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. 
And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.